Please turn with you now to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and beginning in verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book. And recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we worship you even in the diversity of your word. Every sort of situation has been covered by it, and so many years of history are involved in it. And Lord, in this morning, as we have benefited from the words of your gospel and and Luke, now, Lord, how we pray that you would bless us in the words of this Exodus chapter 17. And Lord, how we pray that you'd open both our minds and our hearts to receive the good things that you have for us and to make them clear to us that it might be a blessing. How indeed we pray your blessing would rest upon your appointed means this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to Exodus chapter 17. Last time it was the the first seven verses, and now we carry on with verses 8 to 16 to the end of the chapter. And it concerns the victory over Amalek. As we read in the section, Amalek came out and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And this will be a recurring theme. The, The nations of the promised land, the nations of Canaan, will come out and fight against Israel at different points. And the, if, if indeed all the nations had good reason to fight against uh, the, uh, this invading nation of Israel, perhaps Amalek had something very personally involved because, of course, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau and probably had a particular grudge against their cousin, at least many commentators think so. But frankly, we don't have any idea what they hope to achieve by their uh, attack. We get the feeling that it was a rear area attack. It was not a head-on attack, but as they passed through, uh, that the Amalekites came after the weaker section of the people in the back of the formation. 
And we can be certainly, uh, certain that it was not a good idea. They were roundly defeated. We see that in verse 16. The Lord has sworn that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, so that not only are they defeated in this one instance, but rather they have brought to themselves the undying opposition of the living God himself. And indeed, we see that they come to no good end. Now, beloved, there will be many battles. This is, as I say, a recurring theme of Exodus as it was in Deuteronomy and indeed in Joshua, many other places in the Old Testament historical books as well. There will be many battles. But what is interesting to us is not merely the outcome, because pretty much the outcome is always going to be the same. With some terrible exceptions, God's people win. What is interesting is not merely the fact that they win, but the manner of that victory. How does God bring about this victory? What, which aspects of his character and what, what are the manners, what are the means on display that God demonstrates to us? Thus far, we have seen miraculous means. We have seen in the defeat of the, the Egyptian army, Pharaoh's army, this miraculous flooding, first of all, of opening away in the midst of the sea and then of flooding them in their entirety. We have seen miraculous means of water from the rock and sustaining them. But now we have something that seems a bit more ordinary in the manner, in the means by which God is going to deal with them. Now that, friends, is important for them and for us because although we remember the great miracles, ordinarily it was the case that God was going to help them, God was going to provide for them, God was going to lead them in victory through more ordinary means. And therefore he had to establish their faith through these things. He had to establish their confidence in the means that he would use, including human ones, including human leaders, including men both those in an active and those in a supporting role. And friends, that is us. God can and he has in times past. In the building up of his church in the apostolic age, he certainly used miraculous means of every variety and description. But ordinarily, and for the 99% of God's people that have ever lived and ever have been brought safe to heaven, They have had to rely on the ordinary means of grace. They have been brought to faith through the word of God. They have been sustained through the word and the sacraments. And they have been led by human beings, fallible, sinful men, as their ministers and elders, and yet God has brought them safe. And friends, in every likelihood, we have no warrant for expectation of anything else that that will be our case, that from beginning to end, all of us here in this room and our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be called, will be saved, will be sustained, will be protected, and the church will be built up to all that God intends for it and to the, what the glorious future that we see in Revelation chapter 7 from every tribe and tongue through the ordinary means of grace. And therefore, we must as well have our confidence increased in these ordinary means. Well, the title tonight is The Means of Victory. The Means of Victory. And there are four points. Joshua's men, Moses' hands, Aaron and Hur's support, the Lord's banner. 
Joshua's men, Moses' hands, Aaron and Hur's support, and the Lord's banner. For these are indeed the means, both more approximate and more ultimate, of victory. First of all, Joshua's men. Now in verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go up and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. As I mentioned, this is a different situation, a different scenario than that of the Egyptians. For in that case, they were specifically instructed by the Lord to stand still. They were forbidden, actually, from actually fighting. You are to stand still and to witness the, the great victory that I'm going to work for you. But rather now, they're to do the fighting. You remember at a time in times past, God actually made them do a, a uh, to change direction and move in a in a circuitous way across the desert in order that they not see war as yet. God had determined they were not yet ready to see war. Yes, lest when they see war that they lose heart and return back to Egypt. But now it is God's will that they see war. A reminder to us that God has these things in different times and seasons. Very often it is his way of dealing with very young Christians that he protects us and upholds us and doesn't give us too much too soon. We may see actually some amazing blessings and answers of prayer that happen remarkably quickly and powerfully. But then bit by bit as we're strengthened, he does let us see more conflict, more war, more trials and temptations as he builds us up and strengthens us. Well, God has determined it was time for these men to see war. And there was specifically a leader chosen to carry out this mission. It was Joshua. And this is the first time that we have mention of Moses' assistant and of his future successor, uh, Joshua. Now this man, it seems, is both a military leader as well as a spiritual one. A very able assistant and an able leader in his own right. And what a wonderful provision for Moses that from early days he had such an assistant with whom he could entrust such important missions. It is indeed a great boon. But we're reminded of the goodness and, and blessing of God that as amazing as Moses was, and Moses is, is in that group of two that come, Moses and Elijah come you know, to discuss with Christ the victory which he's going to accomplish, the death that he's going to accomplish. He's there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's one of the greatest leaders of God's people of all time, but he in himself was weak, and God knew that. And from the very beginning, he supplied him with helps and aids and assistance. He said, I can't speak very well. Great, I'll send you Aaron. And maybe next, who knows, next thing he said, I will, I'm not a very good general. And he sends Joshua. And as we're seeing, going to see not only Aaron, but also her supporting him. And everywhere we see that he is surrounded by good and godly men who are able to be his help. And what a great boon, a reminder to pray for such, for the leaders of God's people as well. Not for, yes, that they be raised up in the future to be leaders in their own right, and they need that experience, but also for the time being that they be of help to those who are currently serving in those roles. And so he did. Joshua did precisely as he was told. We know that he is a courageous man. We never see him shrinking from that which he's called to do, unlike his boss, Moses, which frequently does shrink from these things. He does exactly what he's called to do, um, and he goes and gets these men. Now, he, as I say, he was not alone. If we think of Joshua being a means beyond 
God's immediate use of, of force in this case, he goes and gets chosen men. He's instructed to choose some men to do this, and so he does. And we're assuming that he goes and finds the most able men, the men who are going to make good soldiers and who are trained in some way or another or at least useful in battle, and he goes and he finds them, and these are the ones that are going to fight. Now, this, as I say, if we were reading some other book, this would hardly be surprising. But this is indeed something new for us, that God would use chosen men to bring about the victory for his people because we have seen him simply work miracles up until this point to bring victory. But friends, this is the more normal situation for then and for subsequent history and for ourselves that God is going to use chosen men, not that he neglects the totality of his people. Actually, they're only going as servants on behalf of the people. The people are the ones that are being protected. The people are the treasure, the household that is being protected. And the servants then, the chosen men go out, and they fight and they protect, and they serve those who are to be protected. So Joshua's men, that's one means of victory, but not the only. Really, a more amazing sort of means here would be, secondly, Moses' hands. In verse 10, And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. That's a very dramatic portrait. It's a very interesting thing that God had so desired, designed that when Moses held up his hand, we, we understand he has the rod in one hand and, and he has the other one like this. And as long as he does so, then Israel wins. But when he lets go, when he lets his arms down, then Amalek wins. How are we to understand this? Friends, again, let me just say, God uses means. No, they not, might not be the means that you would choose or I would choose. You understand? But God, when he chooses these means, also then grants a blessing upon them. He really uses them. Indeed, they become necessary means. You know, we don't say that this word that is even written here, let alone that which comes from my mouth, that the efficacy resides in them, that it's because... Of, of this word because of this preaching that anyone is saved or anyone is blessed. That's not what we say. What we say is that God, Almighty God, has chosen to use these means. And therefore it is necessary that they be used. As it says in Romans, how will they believe except that they hear? And how will they hear except that they have a preacher? And, and how will the preacher be, how will they hear or have a preacher unless a preacher is sent? In other words, what he's saying is, it's necessary. I've appointed the means of preaching, and it's necessary that they be used. Now, we know that the world doesn't think much of the ordinary means of grace. We know that in the world's eyes, preaching and preachers, it's foolishness. They don't think anything at all. And that's why the church is continually being tempted to use some sort of other means, some sort of new measures, as Finney would call it because they don't seem like much in the world's eyes. Friends, Moses' hands don't seem like a good idea to me either. Right? That doesn't seem like a, the, such a, you know, why, why would God per, possibly choose that one man's hands being up or down makes all the difference between winning and losing, victory and defeat? God is sovereign. 
He has chosen these things for his own glory because, precisely because, he will not share his glory with another. And, and if the means make it look too much like man is the one who's really doing this, then he is going to share his glory with another. And he doesn't want that. And so he always employs means that in one way or another look to our eyes to be weak in order that our eyes ultimately might be upon him and not upon the means. And we'll see that. We'll see that is precisely the case. That even as Moses is holding his hands aloft and is being used for the victory of God's people, what is being revealed actually is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord my banner. These means are necessary. And let me say it's an exercise of faith on Moses' part to employ them. He has to believe that it's true from the very moment that he first put them up there after he saw by experience that they did work. But it was, a, it was an exercise of faith for him to do it in the first place. And we know that Moses is frequently tested along these lines. What are you going to do with that rod, Moses? Are you going to strike it once? Or are you going to speak to the rock instead of striking it? Or are you going to go off on your own and do something apart from what God has instructed? It's an exercise of faith on Moses' part that he uses them, the means in the first place. And beyond that, of, of the people. An exercise of faith on the people's part as they see him up there. All for the, why is he up on the hilltop so the army can see him? And as long as his arms are up, Moses is like that bronze serpent. You remember, later we're going to see the bronze serpent that is, that is held aloft. Why does it need to be held aloft? Because it's an emblem for the, the people to see and an, an object of their faith. They're ultimately putting their faith in Christ. But the bronze serpent has to be held aloft for the people to see and they receive the promise that God is going to save them through that bronze serpent. And so God is saving them through, through Moses as he's holding his hands aloft. Well, as I say, Moses is very much a type of Christ. And we see an echo of Christ being lifted up and bringing victory. We, we saw indeed the, the terrible, some of the details indeed of him, his crucifixion this morning and his his hands being nailed to that cross. His hands were certainly held aloft. And that whole cross then was hoisted up on a hill. And Moses here, even as his hands are aloft, he is being a type of Christ. And the Lord is using him to bring victory. Well, it's Joshua's men. And there's Moses' hands. But beyond that, that's not even enough. God also adds to that Aaron and her and the support that is given to Moses through them. Because in verse 12, we see Moses' hands became heavy. This is not a, a work of a few minutes. This was a more ordinary type of battle. They were fighting more or less all that day. And his hands certainly became heavy. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold your hands up for a long period of time, but eventually even your own hands and arms become very, very heavy. And so they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now, let me just add to it, we should say that even the stone itself ends up being used as a means, a means of a means, I suppose. But in order for him to carry on this work, they said, let's get a stone for you to sit down lest you fall over while you're doing this work. And so this, this mere physical thing becomes... Uh, very useful then, instrumental even, 
in the salvation of God's people. Friends, you probably know why I might bring this to our attention, because I do not think that it is unspiritual for us to think this way with regard to physical things. Physical things are necessary in God's church. And even on the microscopic level of of a lectern or a sound system or the various other material of this place, so even more so as we seek to have a permanent church. It is not utterly a, uh, an unspiritual thing to come to the Lord and ask that such a thing be granted. Because for the precise same reason that that which is working in a temporary situation, as long as he only has to hold his hands there for, for five minutes, he's okay. But as, in fact, that time is lengthened, it's, there's a stone that's necessary. Now, friends, I don't want to stretch this too much, you understand. I'm just saying the principle is something physical ended up being used so that this could be more permanent and, and secure the victory uh, for God's people in that way. And it has been, actually, in point of fact, more than once in the history of the church, God's ordinary dealings with his church, that they make, they make buildings, they erect buildings that are permanent memorials to God, God's goodness and instruments by which the means of grace are proclaimed and which indeed the banner of Christ is held out to the community around them. It is not unspiritual but rather uh, a godly wisdom to seek such for our congregation. So there's a stone, but mainly it's these men, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and her. And there they are, and they're doing the thing that God has called them to do. Isn't it a marvelous thing? As I say, Moses was a man just like we are. He's weak, even though he's, he's called the friend of God, even though he is enabled to see God, at least to some extent. Such a close and immediate thing. He, he says, I'm, it's not like, my relationship with Moses is not like my relationship with most, with everyone else in this world. With him, I speak like a friend face to face. And yet he was fallible, and yet he was weak, and he needed help. And God sent him help in the form of these friends, these men, one his brother, the other physically, and the other his spiritual brother. And they actually lifted up his hands in order that he could do the work that he was called to do. For it was an arduous work that was laid upon him. And what a beautiful picture of the way God knits us together in, in his church. Different callings. Absolutely different callings. But we all have this part to play, some of us in a more supporting role and some of us in a more leading role. But a beautiful thing that God has wrought victory, not necessarily through, through Joshua the general, nor even through Moses who is holding up his hands, but those who are supporting his hands there and serving in this way. Well, the result is clear, as we always knew. In verse 13, Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. It wasn't the work of a moment. It wasn't the work of ten minutes, but of hours. Better part of a day, it would seem. And God granted the victory through these means. But friends, let us, as we've we've looked at these human means and even, even material means of Joshua and his men, Moses and his hands, uh, Aaron and her, and even, yes, the stone itself. Let's not forget what we are seeing in the bigger picture in all of this. In verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. 
For he said, this is verse 16, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war from Amalek uh, from generation to generation. Now, he is speaking of a book of remembrance which he is making with regard to his dealings. And what he is making is a promise. Now, very often we think of promises with regard to his good promise, with regard to his blessing that he has on his people. But he also has some promises regarding the cursing of those who rebel against him, those who are unrepentant and unwilling to bend the knee, and that is certainly the case with the Amalekites. And friends, that curse actually happened. He said, the Lord has sworn and will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. He says, I'm going to utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That's true. We still hear of Egyptians, don't we? There's still in Egypt. There are still Egyptians. And we still hear various other peoples of the Old Testament, but not of the Amalekites. When is the last time you've Anyone's learned Amalekite or gone to to Amalek? Of course, it's been blotted out. God made good on that. And that's a reminder to us all that God is able to make good both on his, the warnings that he gives to us and also on his promised blessing, the gospel. But in verse 15 we read, Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. Well, friends, that's... The beauty of all this, because we always get to see Christ, even in what would seem to be the most obscure places. Moses himself does not bless the the rock or Aaron and her and congratulate them, but rather the, the altar, the thing which he seeks to memorialize, is the fact that the Lord is his banner. Now, let me just say that a banner, we know what that is. It's a, a military thing. When you hold aloft a banner, it's important even to this day to identify various armed forces. And there's always a tradition associated with it. Now, that banner, that flag, that ensign is uh, to be held aloft. And if someone dies who's carrying it, someone else picks it up. And it is to motivate and to energize and also to direct uh, the, the army that has that particular emblem. Well, this, Moses says, this is my God. The Lord himself is my banner, because that is the truth that is on display here. Yes, there's human beings involved. Yes, the Lord has granted victory through Moses. But the thing that's really on display is not this man with his hands like this. He was just the instrument. But of the Lord, which is his banner, and which must be our banner as well. As friends, that is Christ. He's the center. He's the one to whom we look to for, for guidance. He is the, the one that we look to unite around. I don't call you to myself. No, no faithful preacher ever preaches himself. But he calls you to Christ that you might assemble under his banner. And the word that has been preached, this is just the means. All those things there, the Joshua and his men and Moses in his hands and Aaron and her and all the rest of it, these are just beings by which faith is being wrought in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the banner that is being held aloft each and every time that this word is preached. And he's the one that we must put our faith in. You know, we see this idea of the banner in various other places like Psalm 60 verse 4. You have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. 
Or in Isaiah 5.26, you will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they will come with speed swiftly. And you have a picture then of people who are lost in the world. They, have, they don't know where to go. And then the Lord raises up a banner and all the people assemble and rally to that one banner. And this is Christ. This is Christ. This is what the whole work of world missions is all about. Raising up that banner and people coming and assembling and being underneath that banner of Christ. And walking very, very confidently, not in, their, in themselves, but confidently under the banner of Christ all of their days. Isaiah 49, by the way, gives a wonderful promise of what's going to happen with this banner. Eventually, you're going to say, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I can dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me since I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive wandering to and fro? And who has brought these up? There I was left alone, but these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard, that's actually the same word banner, for the people's. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. And a picture then of all the world, of the nations of the world coming, as the gospel is preached, coming to the banner of Christ and being added to his church. Well, by way of application, I would point us first of all to Christ himself, who is the Lord, our banner. And our, I, I think that sometimes... Our struggle indeed in this life, we have been given so many things, is our tendency to look to other things as our banner, even to the point of idolatry. We look about to other things as the, the one thing that gives us identity. You know, that was a frustration for me sometimes in the Marine Corps, where the idea, in theory at least, was that people would forsake their previous identity. Maybe perhaps they used to be in a gang. Maybe perhaps they used to identify with some particular race or ethnicity, and that was their great identity. But now all that's washed away, and you, they, you put on a marine uniform, and that's now your, your banner. And when people would revert to that, it, it sometimes grieved me, because, of course, the idea was that we, we are all together in the Marine Corps. Well, friends, that's, that's nothing in comparison to how the Lord is grieved when we turn again to the things of this world to give us happiness and fulfillment rather than Christ himself. When we have some other badge of identity that sets us maybe a little bit above the commonality of God's people rather than Christ himself. Friends, it is more than sufficient that our banner, our uniform, our our identifying badge be that of Christ Jesus. It is more than enough. None of us deserve to have it in the slightest the fact that God would bestow it upon us, and you know what it is, by the way, that identifying mark is Christian baptism, done in truth and received in faith in the triune God. But our identity with Christ and with the cross, it is more than enough for us. And how I pray, and we pray for one another that we would find truly our identity in Christ and that we would gladly be under his banner, most, most visibly, most self-consciously, all of our days, and when people ask what is different and special about us, that are, the first thing that comes to mind is that I am a Christian, uh, quite apart from any achievements, any professions, any other kind of identities that we might have. 
Secondly, I would remind us of the means of grace, and particularly I would want us to have confidence in God's means of grace. In practical terms, this is surely the lesson that God would have us to, to understand in this, because he's using an awful lot of means. It's quite a chain, actually, as we think, of one means to the other. Yes, it's, the, <clears throat> it's these, the army, but it's being led by Joshua. Yes, it's Joshua, but only as he is uh, being given power from on high, and, but that's flowing through Moses' hands. But Moses' hands are being held aloft by Aaron and Hur, And even he himself is sitting on the stone, and and there's this chain of means. But friends, ultimately, it is God himself who is making these things to work. And we have to be comfortable with that concept of God using means to effect salvation. Matthew Henry on this point says, note, God is to be trusted in the use of means. Ultimately, it's an issue of trust. Even in our day as a whole, as the church struggles with this issue anew, more so than it has done any time since the days of Finney, it is struggling with turning aside to other means, turning aside to new measures of every kind. And the issue ultimately has to do with trust. It has to do with confidence. Do we believe that God is able to do what he says he's going to do through these weak, ordinary means, which the world thinks nothing of? Again, if we are Arminians and we say that it is within man to save himself, then we can come up with something better, a fresher approach, some better show involved. Maybe some entirely different means altogether. But friends, if we understand that everyone is dead, born dead in their sins and trespasses, and that it is only a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bring anyone to salvation, and that God has promised to use his means and nothing else, Indeed, our standards say it is a sin to put our confidence in unlawful means, means that God has not given to us. And we humbly submit and say, Lord, you are able to do it. I'm not able. You say somehow that the preaching of your word and the administration of the sacraments and of prayer, that these things you will use for the salvation and building up of your people. And we have nowhere else to go. We must believe it. We must trust in it. Thirdly, we have to be reminded that God often does use chosen men. And what I mean by this is that God has given us the ordained ministry. We believed in the ordained ministry, not because this is our preference, but because this is what God has established and promised to bless. That's why, if you want to know, that's why there's such emphasis in our our mission in the things the church supports, so much emphasis on training men for the ministry because we know it is ordinarily God's will to use chosen men to be the blessing of his people. He uses, he appoints men to lead them in battle, as it were. He appoints men to pray for them, to lead them in that way. And, of course, both of these, in different, both Joshua and Moses, in different ways are, are pointing us uh, to the, the ordained ministry in this sense. And that's why we ought to pray for them. That's why we ought to pray for many more. Friends, if we want to see the church in our day reformed, if we want to see a widespread uh, reformation and revival, then we surely ought to be praying that such chosen men be raised up and trained and employed onto the battlefield of this place. But fourthly, let us not forget that God also uses people in supporting roles. Well, how disheartening it would be 
if the only thing that we ever thought about and the only thing that God ever used to any extent whatsoever were those chosen men, were the Joshua's and the Moseses, what about everyone else? Friends, he does use us, every one of us, in supporting roles. There are different parts of the body. Some of the parts of the body are more public than others. But others are more private, have supporting and very necessary roles. What would have been the, the outcome of that battle had Aaron and her not been there in their, in their fairly inconspicuous supporting roles, merely holding up Moses' hands? They would have failed. They would have been defeated. And so it is, friends. You, under, you have to understand. So it would be were each and every one of you not to be doing the supporting roles that God has called you to do. Praying, yes, for your minister and elders. Praying, yes, for the, God's blessing upon the means of grace. But in all the other ways in which God has called you to serve. We know there's even, even a gift called helps. And all these supporting things... These are necessary and useful. And we should pray for that. Fifthly and finally, let me say in a more specific and individual sense that we should support one another. There's one thing that we see throughout Scripture is that when God's people are obedient and united, then they are safe, they are on their way to victory. There may be trials and battles, but but they prevail. But when they're divided... And when people are looking at their own interests instead of the interests of their brothers and sisters, then there's trouble. Beloved, we need to look around and for those who are struggling among us, those who are weak. We need to help them do what is said in Hebrews 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. There were two of them, one on either side, Aaron and Hur, for one weak man, Moses. And friends, that's pretty much the picture spiritually of this church at all times. There will be any number of us who are particularly weak and disheartened and in need of help. And there needs to be two, the rest of us in various ways on one side and another, helping and supporting in prayer and practical ways, in befriending and encouraging and in every way that we can think, actively seeking out these things so that God might bless us as a whole. Because indeed, this is part of God's means by which he intends to keep us and bless us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this story. We glorify you even to this day for the victory that was granted over Amalek. Lord, it was a very different way than the victory over the Egyptians It was a different way than any victory that has come thereafter. But Lord, in principle, we see your use of ordinary means and ordinary men to bring about this victory. And we understand that it is your plan for the church that you use the ordinary means of grace, the word of God, the sacraments and prayer. And we ask, Lord, that you'd grant us great confidence, not in these things as they exist in themselves, in isolation, but in you, Lord, you who have ordained these things, you who empower them, you who bless them to our salvation, and that we do not turn away to any other means. Lord, we do pray, both for the chosen men and for those in supporting roles, as we know this is part of your good plan for your church, 
how we pray, Lord, that there would be more called to be chosen men and that you would bless them in every way. And, Lord, that the rest of us would give ourselves to find in any way that we can to support as you have ordained these things for our good and your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.